Um, I figured out a pros and cons list of doing a book podcast. Yeah. What's that? So pro. No, wait, I should start with cons. It's always good to start with the negatives first. Con. I'm destroying every single book that I do. For, I read for this podcast. That's fair. Pro. I have an excuse to buy more books because we already have like two other sets of nice copies. True. Yeah. So then I can just buy more nice copies because I've ruined the copy that I have anyway. <laughs> Pros and cons. Those are the only two things. Mm, pro. I get to talk a lot. Con. I have to listen a lot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Con. I talk a lot anyway, so <laughs> I don't know. That feels like a, a mood. I don't have a con for that one. Ready to go? Mm, one more drink of water. Okay. Pro, I have to be fully hydrated all the time because we do a podcast. Con, I have to go to the bathroom more because I'm fully hydrated now. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter 12 of Ship of Magic, of derelicts and slave ships. And speaking of slave ships, well, not slave ships, actually, live ships, <laughs> we have Paragon to start with. I guess he's technically a slave because he's, they're dragons trapped and used for humans. And they're to their own for purposes. their labor. Maybe. I don't know. That was a stretch. I just misspoke and tried to stretch it into something that made sense. But we start with Paragon. He is dreaming. It is him upside down, presumably a memory from one of his previous wreckages. Probably from when he still had his sight. So before Kenneth's time. Yep. Because he talks about what he sees. He is underwater, he says, even here beneath the water, his decks stilled of battering feet and shouted commands, his holds replete with seawater and silence. There was no peace. Boredom, yes, but no peace. And he talks about how the fish are all around him and it's just boring. And then the serpents come. They were drawn to him, it seemed, both repulsed and fascinated by him. They taunted him, peering, peering at him, their toothy maws opening and closing so close to his face and arms. He tried to push them away, but they mobbed him, letting his fists batter at them as frantically as he might, and never showing any signs that they felt his strength as anything greater than a fish's helpless flopping. They spoke about him to one another, submerged, trumpeting. He almost understood. That was the most frightening thing, that he almost understood them. They looked deep into his eyes. They wrapped his hull in their sinuous embraces, holding him tight in a way that was both threatening and reminiscent of something. It looked around the last corner of his memory, some vestige of familiarity too frightening to summon to the forefront of his mind. They held him and dragged him down, deeper and deeper, so that the cargo still trapped inside him tore at him in its buoyant drive to be free. And all the while they accused and demanded furiously as if their anger could force him to understand them. Paragon, and he is startled awake. So 
if this is a first time reader going through, this lets us know that there is something about live ships that is close to dragons. That there's something mm. there, I think. For new readers, we don't even know that the serpents are related to dragons at this point. Oh, I guess I just assumed they were related to dragons in some way. But. Yeah, I mean, you can guess that, but it's not like confirmed. I guess. So for a new reader, you could make that link, but it's right. for sure there's a link between Paragon has talked to the serpents or been talked at mm-hmm. by the serpents. There. But I think, I guess more so for a rereader, it's more glaringly obvious. Right, right. It's definitely one of those tidbits that you for sure pick up on on a reread. So I guess it's not fair to say rereaders would be able to tell some things up. But I feel like the fact that he can almost understand these beings at least as some sort of red flag of like something is weird here. Right. Although yeah. maybe that means that humans can almost understand them. They just choose not to. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Rereading it, it's kind of, I don't know if I caught this on my first time through because it's been a while, but rereading it, it's quite plain the kind of mystery that Robin Hobb was laying out in these books. How there are these serpents, mysterious. They follow slavers around to get easy meals, but we're following one pot around and they have a mission. They have some sort of old memories that they're going towards. We have live ships. Right now we get a little tidbit of they seem the serpents seem very interested in live ships and trying to talk to it, try to make them understand, and the live ship almost understands. And then there's that third mystery of the Rainwilds themselves. Where do the live ships come from? What are these traitors? There's a lot of, you'll die if you go up there and things like that. Right. But obviously there's context up there, but we don't hear anything about it. So rereading, you can see all these little different points kind of laid out in anticipation for that plot to come through. But like I said, it's been a while since I first read through these, but I don't (laughs) know if I fully grasped where this was going this early. That's fair. I think I distinctly remember, well, I'm, if you couldn't tell by episode 100 whatever we're on. Um, I'm a pretty critical reader (laughs) and I'm always looking for that little tidbit of the thing that's going to tell me. Where did the author mess up? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes, kind of. Um, No, but what's going to tell me what's going to happen at the end? I want to guess the ending. That's literally how I read is like, what is being said here that will help me guess what's going to happen at the end? And I'm not always right, but I think... I just assumed everybody else did that. So it's a good reminder that (laughs) everybody reads differently. But I definitely remember being like, okay, so live ship boats are somehow related to dragons because I'd already decided that there's no way these creatures were not something to do with dragons. But that was just my own, like, I hope these are dragons. (laughs) I can't remember when you were reading through them. When did you figure out Amber was beloved or the fool? I don't remember. I think it. I don't remember. I feel like in one of not this early, but maybe later on, you were like, I think Amber is another one of the whites like the fool. But you never fully said it was the fool until like one of the more obvious hints, like when she was carving or something. I think whenever her hands were described. Mm, Okay. Because that really made me think about the fool. Maybe, but it was definitely, you had told me at the time it was earlier than you figured it out. So it couldn't, I don't think it was like. Yeah. I remember I figured it out 
before she started carving fits mm. uh, out of Paragon. But I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was before that last like clue. I have some memory of it being on the docks. Like I feel like Amber does something on the docks mm. before sailing. And I was like, it's the fool. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. We'll get there and I'll remember it. I'm sure. <laughs> but here we are with Paragon and he is suffering with these nightmares that it's scary for him to think that there are similarities between him and these monsters. Also, I think it's really poignant that it starts where he is afraid he is dead. And we know based off the context clues of when this probably was, it might be a lingering echo of the younger boy who died on his ship to quicken him. The third. Yeah. Luck. Lucklow? Ludluck. Ludluck. Yes. So potentially there's that little bit of echo there and that's where the fear is. And I do wonder if part of the reason Paragon struggles so hard with his dual dragons that are in him, is it all because there are two, which we know later, or is it because his first moments were spent with the serpents instead of humans and that brought them more to the forefront? Could be a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of tragedy in his life. True. (laughs) So... He is dreaming. We know this because Althea wakes him by saying Paragon and he realizes that his arms were in the air during this dream and he self-consciously puts them back in his normal position of safeguarding his chest. She reintroduces herself as Althea because obviously he doesn't quite recognize her voice and he kind of goes into the thing, oh, your father's going to be angry you're here because the last time she's really visited has been a very long time. And he specifically remembers a time when her father came down and chased her away and scolded her. So she has to kind of correct him like, no, no, that that was a long time ago. He's gone now. And she reminds him that she's seen him a number of times since that moment that Paragon is remembering And Paragon says, oh, maybe it has been, but I remember that, and he called me a damnable piece of wreckage and the worst sort of luck one could have. She sounded almost ashamed as she replied, yes, I remember that too, very clearly. Probably not as clearly as I, but then you probably have a greater variety of memories to choose from, he added petulantly. One does not gather many unique memories hauled out on a beach. I am sure you had a great many adventures in your day, Elthea offered. Probably. It would be nice if I could remember any of them. And they kind of reminisce a little bit here, catch up slightly, get reacquainted. Right. This kind of feels like a similar thing, what he does with Brashen, just not as familiar. With Brashen, he wants to act like there's this big, tough bravado where he has to say, you know, like, oh, you can come aboard my ship, but it's it has this whole, like, ebb and flow of and give and take of like, you have to admit that you need my help. And here we see Paragon kind of admitting that again in a sort of different way to ultimately make Althea feel bad. He, he admits that in the text that he is trying to get Althea to feel bad, that there's some sort of joy he gets out of making her feel uncomfortable. Uh, And then he has to wrestle with the, the fact that maybe she actually does have feelings that are not just somebody that an oppressor 
like feelings an oppressor would have that she also can be oppressed. Yes. Althea remarks that he used to tell her a bunch of stories when she was young and he's like, well, they were probably lies or if I did remember, I've forgotten them. I think I am getting vaguer. Brashen thinks it might be because my log is missing. He says I do not seem to recall as much as my past of my past as I used to. Brashen? A sharp edge of surprise in her voice. Another friend, Paragon replied carelessly. It pleased him to shock her with the news he had another friend. Sometimes it irritated him that they expected him to be so pleased to see them, as if they were the only folk he knew. Though they were, they should not have been so confident of it, as if it were impossible a wreck such as he might have made other friends. Oh, after a moment, Althea added, I know him as well. He served on my father's ship. Ah, yes, the... Vivacia, how is she? Has she quickened yet? Yes, yes she has, just two days ago. Paragon says, well, that surprises me that you're here. I would expect you to be there. And Althea says, yeah, I, I would. I miss her so much. I need her so badly just now. Her honesty caught Paragon off guard. He had accustomed himself to think of people as givers of pain. They could move about so freely and end their lives any time they chose. It was hard for him to understand that she could feel such a depth of pain as her voice suggested. For a moment, somewhere in the labyrinths of his memory, a homesick boy sobbed into his bunk. Paragon snatched his consciousness back from it. Tell me about it, he suggested to Althea. He did not truly want to hear her woes, but at least it was a way to keep his own at bay. And she complies, telling him pretty much the whole story. Right, which does surprise him. He wasn't expecting her to actually bear her soul for him. But we do see this hurt creature that Paragon is. Yeah. He kind of has a Ludluck way, it seems, of making, wanting to make others pay to feel as though all people, he's just generalizing that all people are horrible and that all they can do is give pain and being reminded that there's actually other aspects to human beings is really surprising for him. It's really a struggle for him to grasp. Which is very sad to hear. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, given his upbringing, it's not that surprising. No, it's not surprising. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it is very sad. And it does make me feel for Paragon a little bit. So Althea tells him the story and she moves against his planking. Just to, well, he thinks it's just for the warmth of the day still lingered in his planks and she was hoping for that. But he says with the nearness of her body came a greater sharing of her words and feelings. Almost it was like they were kin. Did she know that she reached toward him for understanding as if he were her own live ship? Probably not, he told himself harshly. It was probably just that he reminded her of the vivacia, and so she extended her feelings into him. That was all. It was not especially intended for him. Nothing was especially intended for him. And he says he forced himself to remember that. That is such an interesting thought, that Paragon doesn't feel as though anybody would want to be a part of him would willingly right. reach towards him for that sort of comfort. And honestly, in this case, I think he's right. I don't think Althea is 
trying to connect consciously with him. But I don't think she would necessarily turn away the connection. No, I don't think so either. She might think it'd be a betrayal to Vivesha and like hold off for a while, but I don't know. Right. But it does share a really interesting insight that there is some sort of connection and that it isn't necessarily a blood bond that is needed because Althea is not related to Paragon blood wise. So the fact that she is able to find that bond with him, it kind of makes me again, think of the wit and how wit partners have to grasp out towards each other. They both have to share that link and decide. And so I wonder if maybe that's kind of how live sheds would work. However, they have the added bias of all the memories of your family members. So of course they're going to be more likely to go after family, but I don't know. The intense feelings of grief that Althea has right now, plus his hatred for, well, not hatred. I can't say that. His dislike probably for most of the Ludlucks <laughs> that he has experienced, plus can it probably also instilled in him a bit, right. probably makes him more predisposed to reach out and answer to those feelings of grief that Althea has that kind of echo his own sense of loss. Yeah. I like that explanation. But she is reaching. Whether or not it's consciously, she is reaching. And she finishes her story. She finishes it with a request. Can I please stay aboard tonight? Paragon does his usual thing, like you mentioned, Emma, with uh, Brashen and says, oh, it's probably going to be really smelly aboard. My hull is sound enough, but, you know, there's all sorts of garbage aboard. And... Althea pretty much begs him, like, please, you know, I won't mind. I'll find some corner. He says, very well, and then adds, after hiding a smile, if you don't mind sharing a space with Brashen, he does come back here every night, you know. He does? Startled dismay was in her voice. He comes and stays almost every time he makes port here. It's always the same. And he explains Brashen's habits saying he comes to port saying, you know, I'm going to stay here the night. I don't want to spend my money. He'll go out drinking, say, oh, I shouldn't have went out drinking. I got to start my life and my future soon and I'll save more, save more money, but inevitably he'll go out drinking and come back until he has none. Same old story. And Althea's like, I think he's been staying aboard the Vivacia pretty much every time we're in. He's like, oh, it's probably in the past then. Right. So again, we have this weird jarring moment of the past and the future not really being tenable for Paragon. It just, he doesn't quite grasp where he is in time. He doesn't know if that last meeting with Brashen was a few days ago, a few years ago, and he can't tell how long it's been with Althea either. It's just hard for him to grasp the passage of time, which is super fair considering he's blind and alone. And <laughs> has no logbooks. He has no logbooks. But there is that little subtlety of, oh, yeah, he isn't super reliable because he doesn't even know when things happen. And on top of that, we get a little insight to a couple chapters ago when Brashen had followed Althea home and made sure she was safe and then went back to Paragon, that this is a pattern 
and he's doing it all over again. He went to Paragon because he didn't want to spend money on a place when there was barely any time to sleep. And he's just falling into, falling into his own old habits again. He wishes her good night and mentions to Althea where Brashen has been sleeping. She says thank you, awkwardly clambers up, and Paragon says she's finally fumbling her way down into the cargo hold. She had been more agile as a girl, and there had been a summer when she had come to see him nearly every day, and he reminisces on that memory of her coming down pretty much every day, pretending that he was her live ship and all this sort of stuff until her father followed her and yelled at her. But she finds a place, curling up against a bulkhead, and Paragon says that she'd be cold tonight. His hallmate might be sound, but that didn't keep the damp out of him. He could feel her, still and small against him, unsleeping. Her eyes were probably open, staring into the blackness. Time passes, Brashen comes. He greets Paragon, and Paragon grants him permission to come aboard, and then says, Althea Vestrit is here. There's a silence, and he's like, she looking for me? <laughs> like, no, me. It pleased him inordinately to give the man that answer. Her family has turned her out and she had nowhere else to go, so she came here. Paragon's kind of reveling that he has friends. And also knowledge that Brashen doesn't. Yes, yes. I do want to back up just a little bit because I think it's really interesting to see how Althea interacts with Paragon. Whenever she goes to bed, she lets him know that it is not quite dark yet and he's kind of surprised. And then she very politely says thank you and reaches out and shakes his hand, which is kind of crazy considering we know that Althea doesn't even really see the deck hands as people almost. That <laughs> she just kind of, I mean, that's not fair. She sees them as people, just people below her. They are the sailors. Yes. They're not the loyal sailors. <laughs> yeah. They're not worth her time to think about. So it's really interesting to see her in this position where she's being courteous to someone that isn't a family member. <laughs> well, although I don't know that we've seen her be courteous to any family members yet, but. She is showing respect to Paragon, which I think is kind of big, considering who she is. She loves live ships, though. She, she does. has a lot of she... respect for them. That's true. That's true. But Rashin is here now, and he is very surprised. Just as Althea is, he's surprised. And I think it's less surprise that Paragon has other friends. To me, it reads more as surprise that the other is there. Right. It's... Like, oh, of course, Paragon knows other people, but more like, oh, my God, are are they here? Why are they here? Are we going to have to talk? Mm -hmm. Especially from Brashen's end. He does not want to talk. And he's drunk right now. So <laughs> he's yawning. He's asking, does she know I'm living, uh, I'm living aboard? A cautious question, one that begged for a negative answer. Paragon is glad to say, of course she knows. <laughs> I told her that you had taken the captain's cabin and that she'd have to make el do elsewhere. Oh, well, good for you. Good for you. Good night, then. I'm dead on my feet. Good night, Brashen. Sleep well. Brashen climbs in, heads to the captain's cabin. And he does not sleep. Paragon says it almost seems like he's waiting. And Paragon feels Althea uncurl. 
She moves up to the captain's cabin and Paragon can hear pretty much the whole conversation that they have and is wondering if they know that he can hear because he can hear pretty much everything. Right. And he's assuming that Althea would have some sort of idea because she comes from a live ship trader family. She was just on a live ship. She should have an idea of what his capacity is. But I don't think he's or I do think he's underestimating how much is known about live ships and their right. abilities. Yeah. Especially to people who didn't inherit inherit the ship. And True. didn't get a talking to from somebody who did own the ship and knows about it. His outside view of this conversation is pretty funny, at least right at the start. She kind of knocks and says, can I talk to you? And he's like, can I stop you? He asks grumpily. It was evidently a familiar response for Althea was not put off by it. <laughs> Just thought that was very funny. Yes. She sets her hand to the handle, but doesn't open it and just kind of talks through the door and asks about mundane things first, a light. And then they kind of move past their little bickering, like they always have, of how impossible the other is. Until... Um, Althea kind of says, I don't know why I'm even trying to talk to you. That makes two of us, Brashen added as an aside, as if to himself. Paragon wondered if they were aware of how clearly he could hear their every word and movement. So he's like, hmm, maybe <laughs> they wouldn't do this if they knew I could hear everything. Because it seems like a very private argument. <laughs> right. Although it doesn't stop him. It's still entertainment to him. Right. And I'm sure is exciting considering the life he leads. But Althea does finally ask, you know, can I come in? I'm tired of trying to talk through a door. And Brashen simply says the latch isn't locked. She just wants to talk to somebody because she can't go back home and she has no one else to talk to. She opens the door and basically... She says, my whole life just fell apart in the last two days. I don't know what to do. Go home, he suggested without sympathy. You know that eventually you'll have to. The longer you put it off, the harder it will be. So do it now. That's easy to say and hard to do. You should understand that. You never went home. Brashen gave a short, bitter laugh. Didn't I? I tried. They just threw me out again. Because I had waited too long. So, now you know you are getting good advice. Go back home while you still can, while a bit of crawling and humble obedience will buy you a place to sleep and food on your plate. Wait too long, let the disgrace set in, let them get used to life without the family troublemaker, and they won't have you back no matter how you plead and crawl. Althea was silent for a long time, then, that really happened to you? No, I'm making it all up, Brashen replied sourly. I'm sorry, Althea said after a time. More resolutely, she she went on, but I can't go back. At least, not while Kyle, Kyle's in port, and even after he's gone, if I do go back, it will only be to get my things. You mean your dresses and trinkets, precious relics from your childhood, your favorite pillow? And my jewelry, if I have to, I can always sell that. So I think this really pinpoints the different set of views between Brashen and Althea. We have Althea, who is running away from home because of the oppressiveness that she feels and the pressure to not be herself. 
and being herself is simply doing a non-traditional female role. What she wants to do isn't isn't necessarily giving into vices, I should say. So there's nothing inherently wrong about her wanting to go and be on a ship and sail and be a captain. It's just not looked highly upon in society for a woman to do that. And so she's running for that reason. Whereas Brashen, when he tells his story, he talks about how, you know, he realized that he can't really get very far without the privileges that he had in life. There's no more money or food. And that's what made him go back. But the reason he was kicked out was because he was struggling with addictions and vices that he was giving into. And I think it's just a completely different thing. And Brashen is equating the two. Interesting. I think they're very similar, actually. You do? Yeah. Just an overall view of them. Because, yes, there are differences for leaving, um, or their reasons for leaving are different, but the outcome is the same. And I think Brashen is coming from, yes, a very blunt place in his drunkenness of like, I don't even know why you're talking to me because you pretty much hate me and have always insulted me on my father's ship kind of thing. Right. So he's giving it to her plane here. And I, I don't see the fault in the advice he's giving from where he's coming from because they were, like he said, they're both troublemakers in their family. Yes, his were a little bit more of his fault, but kind of Althea too. She hasn't tried to play nice, even though Kyle is a huge dick and no one can really play nice with him, especially a woman could play nice with him. But she's getting drunk. She's talking bad about the family and ports to sailors. She's like doing all these kinds of things that are just exacerbating the problem. So in the eyes of each of the families that they're running from, they're troublemakers. Right. They're not helping the family image. They're not helping the family fortunes. They're not helping the family do anything well. So them running away after a while kind of sets in like, okay, we can do this without her. We've learned to cope, whatever. And Brashen is kind of reflecting on that because I'm sure it was hard for his family too to be like, this is the last straw. You have to like not be here anymore. (laughs) Right. No, and I think that's fair. And I don't think that his advice is necessarily bad because there isn't a lot she can do realistically, which we'll get into more with more of his advice. But I do think that he kind of views them similarly. I feel like in Brashen's eyes, because it's Althea, it can't be that serious that she is throwing her life away for a not serious reason. Like the, her, her reason is made up in his mind. Like it just doesn't make sense to him because why would she want to throw away an easy life and money when all she has to do is just, as you said, play nice and just dress like a woman or I guess not just dress like a woman, but like (laughs) act like a lady. And I don't, I think he just doesn't understand that that isn't easy. And just like he didn't want to have to live by the stuffy rules of a trader family. Then he wanted to live on the wild side that Althea's needs are just as valid. I don't know. I just feel like even though I know that his advice is good and it's good that he's telling her the truth of the situation of what could happen to her, I feel like it is coming from a place of like, well, I'm much worse off than you. 
and my problems are way worse and you're throwing your life away over nothing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's beyond that point and she has a chance, so he could be a little bit jealous as well. That's true. So he's telling her basically, go crawling back and you have all these things that you're going to go get. Don't worry about them. Why bother? You'll find you can't drag all that stuff around with you anyway. As for your jewelry, why not pretend you already got it, sold it piece by painful piece, and the money is gone, and now you really have to find out how to live your own life. That'll save you time, and any heirloom stuff will at least remain with your family, if Kyle hasn't seen to having it locked up already. The silence that followed Brashen's bitter suggestion was blacker than the starless darkness the Paragon stared into. When Althea did speak again, her voice was hard with determination. I know you're right. I need to do something, not wait around for something to happen. I need to find work, and the only work I know anything about is sailing, and it's my only path to getting back on board Vivacia, but I won't get hired dressed like this. Brashen gave a contemptuous snort. Face it, Althea, you won't get hired no matter how you are dressed. You've got too much stacked up against you. You're a woman, you're Efren Vestrit's daughter, and Kyle Haven won't be too happy with anyone who hires you either. Why should being Efren Vestrit's daughter be a mark against me? Althea's voice was very small. My father was a good man. Brashen has to explain the intricacies of kind of these social dynamics that she's not aware of, that she's a little bit naive to, and has to explain that, yes, he was a good man, but even though we're none of us are enemies here, we all have rivals in the training. We either train the same things, we're allied with people that do different things. You know, there's always these social dynamics. And that's not going to play nice with anybody who knows you. He says, but when you go looking for work, it's going to be, well, like it was for me. Brashen Trell, eh? Kelf Trell's son. Well, why don't you work for your family, boy? Oh, had a falling out? Well, I don't want to get on your father's bad side by hiring you. Not that they ever come right out and say it. Of course, they just look at you and put you off and say, come back in four days. Only they aren't in, and when you come back. And those that don't get along with your family, well, they don't want to hire you either, because they like seeing you down in the dirt. Brashen's voice was winding down, getting deeper and softer and slower. He was talking himself to sleep, Paragon thought, as he often did. So this gets down to the nitty gritty of what Althea's time trying to get a ship will actually be like. And I do think that it is a kindness that Brashen is telling her this. I think it's good for him to help her think about the full magnitude of what she's asking and how hard it's going to be. And that it's good for her to hear. I also think it was a good idea for him to say, just pretend you already sold the jewels and now you really have to start living on your own. Now what? What do you do when there's no backup plan? Because it's really easy to sell things off and get money just for a few more days until there's nothing else to sell. And I also think that was a really good point. And probably something that he found out the hard way. That there's a few heirlooms out there that are not with the family anymore. Right, yeah. Althea seems to take that info to heart a little bit, not in the direction that Brashen, you know, is giving the advice to like, hey, just go to your family. It'll be way easier. But she asks how he survives. Right. And I think the main thing, the main difference between them is Brashen is phrasing this as here's why you shouldn't even try. 
And Althea is seeing this as here's what happened when I tried. So you can do better. And that's not what he's doing. And so there is this weird disconnect that's happening. So he explains that he shipped on a Chalcedian boat first, hopped off at the first port, got on a different boat. Worst times he's had on ships ever for those. And he kind of trails off and then kind of picks back in and says, by the time I came back to Bingtown, I was a seasoned hand. Oh, was I seasoned. But still the same old damn thing. Trell's boy this and Trell's son that. I thought I'd made something of myself. I actually tried to go to my father and patch things up, but he was not much impressed with what I'd made of myself. No, sir, he was not. What a horse's ass. So I went to every ship in the harbor. Every ship. No one was hiring Kelf Trell's son. When I got to the Vivacia, I kept my scarf down low on my brow and kept my eyes on the deck. Asked for honest work for an honest sailor. And your father said he'd try me. Said he could use an honest man. Something about the way he said it. I was sure he hadn't recognized me, and I was sure he'd turn me off if I told him my name. But I did anyway. I looked at him and I said, I'm Brashen Trell. I used to be Kelf Trell's son. And he said, That won't make your watch one minute shorter or longer, sailor. And you know, it never did. And this is where kind of Althea chimes in and... Your point is proven true here. Althea says, oh, Chalcedian ships don't hire women. Like, that's not the point of his story. Right. It took one extraordinary, like even after years and the worst ships that Brashen has ever been on to become a sailor and think of himself well enough to be proud to go back to his own father who cast him out and say like, hey, I'm yeah. like something now. It took Efren Vestrit, who by all accounts is a very like, very easygoing captain or like welcoming captain for those outcasts to be like, yeah, I'll try you on as like a regular sailor. It's fine. And Efren is not one of the norms. No, he he is definitely different than all the other captains. And I think that's what Althea doesn't get. She's not grasping this idea that just because your father was an old ship, old trader, captain does not mean that other of the old traders live ship captains are going to be the same right going to hire you and like brashen brought up there's the whole thought that they could potentially ruin any trade deals with vivacia because kyle obviously doesn't like althea and isn't going to help them if they help her so it is really precarious. And I feel like at some point Althea stopped listening because she comes oh, yeah, 100%. because when she comes back in with the well, Chelsea Deans don't really hire with a female sailors. It's like, did you even listen? <laughs> <laughs> There's that like where she's trying to grasp of like, well, well, that's not pertinent to yeah, me. Yeah, I like, couldn't do that. How do I do this then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then Brashen has to hit her with the hard truce too. Like, yeah, Chelsea Deans don't hire women because of superstition that you know, they make the serpents follow them because they bleed once a month. But then Althea's like, oh, but other people have women sailors. And Brashen's like, yeah, but not as sailors, really. Yes, there are women sailors, but most of the ones you see on the docks are working on their family boats with fathers and brothers to protect them. Ship out alone on anything else, and you'd better choose early which shipmates you want to roll. If you're lucky, they'll be possessive enough to keep the others off you. If you're not lucky... They'll turn a nice profit from your services before you reach the next port. 
and most mates and captains will turn a blind eye to what's going on to keep order on the ship. That's if they don't claim your services for themselves. He paused, then added grumpily, And you already knew all that. You couldn't grow up around sailors and not know it. So why are you even considering this? Anger engulfed her. She wanted to shout that she didn't believe it or demand to know why men had to be such pigs. But she did believe it, and she knew that Brashen could not answer that question any more than she could. Her anger deserts her. Right. This is something that Brashen says because he's drunk, but he's like, why am I telling you this? You know all this. And Althea has no idea. No. This is the not the first, not the second time, but uh, a few times in that she's been extremely naive of the dangers of Bingtown, of being a sailor, of responsibilities in general. Right. And I think part of that is because of her sheltering from her father but also just never having to worry about what the other ships are like. There's no need to know what's going on in other ships if she thinks that her whole life will be on this ship, the Vivacia. You know, there's no need to worry or wonder because she's never going to have to do it. And now she's sitting here and being told all these horrible things that happen on other ships. And I'm sure it's not as bad. Well, I don't know, I guess. I would assume it's not every single ship like Brashen is making it seem. But it is probably most. Probably not six duchy ships or maybe not six duchies ships. Right. You would hope not. I mean, you'd hope none of them would be that way. But it's really this interesting thing where she has to think about it as like human nature. Of course, people are going to be horrible. But why? Why are they like that? Why can't they just let people work and that is a really frustrating thing to have to deal with and to face. And I'm glad that Brashen is making her face that because that is a real thing that she needs to consider to pursue this path and Knowledge a real danger. That she needed. Yeah. Yes. So even though he's not trying to be helpful in making her path forward easy, he is trying to, you know, get her to change her mind. I think it is still good that he is being so honest with her. Oh, yeah. And Althea kind of asks Brashen, so what am I to do? She asked miserably. It did not seem to Paragon she was speaking to Brashen, but he answered anyway. Find a way to be reborn as a boy, preferably one that isn't named Vestret. It kind of, he falls asleep and she kind of stays awake thinking. Right. And we do get to see a little bit here the pull again of the, of Althea and Paragon, because in that chapter or in that paragraph, excuse me, before she asks, what am I to do? It's almost as though it's in her point of view. We have this anger engulfed her. She wants to know what's going on. She doesn't ask it because she knows, but we're not in Althea's point of view. We're in Paragon's, which means there is a link there that Paragon is sharing in this link that he is feeling her side of things. And we don't see that with Brashen. We don't see that connection that Brashen has. I don't think, at least not yet. And so I thought that was really interesting, an interesting way to bring that back in from earlier. Yeah, definitely. It's a kind of a give and take in between that because we have Althea reaching out when she's telling her story, Althea at the end here, but in the middle when he's saying like, I don't know if they can understand me, but Paragon, or understand that I can listen in, but Paragon thinks that Brashen was including him in the conversation, at least. Right. Doesn't even mention Althea in the middle. So there's kind of, there is a give and take there. It's interesting. Yeah. But there is this sadness as this end to this section where... 
Althea really has to think hard now. Is it worth still pursuing her dream of sailing on a ship if that if this is the danger in the real life application to what will happen if she chooses this path? Right. And I think that's really important. That's something that she does need to do. And it's good that she was given all of the answers instead of like her father's. Whether or not she listened to them. Right. But the way her father raised her was so sheltered that it's nice that she has a chance to finally, yes, make a decision for herself, but make a decision that is more informed. She knows what she's making the decision for moving forward. And I think that's big. So then we jump to slave ships. Yes. We have Kennet on board his ship and they are stalking a slaver. Yes. Actively pursuing it. And Sorkor is obviously very excited and very eager to chase. He's kind of giving commands, you know, taking control. They are going to catch this slaver probably before dawn because they're going quickly upon it and the slaver doesn't know that they're there quite yet. Right. And even if they see them, there's a chance that they can get away because who's chasing a slaver. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's very clear that this is a slaver and that they're easy to tell because Kenneth talks about how he can smell the slaver from where they are, which is really gross (laughs) just for hygienic reasons. Like I feel really bad for all those people being kept in that ship but also really gross to think about the stench of sick and dying people being so strong that you're a couple miles away and you're smelling it. He also mentions that there are a couple serpents. Yes. Following the ship. Um, Sorcor is well aware and they're like, yeah, they're just following it for easy food because they throw bodies overboard. And he says they won't. They're smart. They won't interfere with the fight. They won't endanger us because they're just going to wait for bodies to go in the water for an easy meal. And Kenneth asks, and after? Sorkor grins savagely. If we win, they'll be so fat with the crew of the slaver, they won't be able to wiggle after us. If we lose, he shrugged, it won't matter much to us. Kenneth, of course, is very upset. Um, He's kind of reminiscing now of scenes that we missed where they had previously chased a live ship, Ringsgold, and it obviously got away from them, even though Ringsgold seemed like it was a very fat and old live ship that couldn't move very swiftly. It obviously quickly outran them. Right, which really goes to show that as much superstition as there is about live ship, there is a lot of truth that somehow they are just faster than the uh, than regular ships, which does make me wonder how that works. Like, what is it about them that gives them that ability? But I don't know. Whatever it is, it it works for them because they are, they have broken free and Sorkor gets his wish of freeing the first slave ship. Kenneth mentions that Sorkor had probably already been sniffing uh, to see where the next slaver was going to come from. And... Kenneth remarks, maybe it was just the man's infernal luck that they had raised this one so quickly. It was a typical Chalcedian slaver, deep-hulled and wide-waisted, all the better to pack her full of flesh. Never had Kenneth seen Sorkor so lustful in pursuit, so painstaking in his stalking. The very wind seemed to bless him, and it was actually well before dawn when Sorkor ordered the sweeps out. 
The ballista were already wound and set, loaded with a ball and chain to follow their prey's rigging, and grappling hooks were ready to snare their crippled conquest. These last were a new idea of Sorkor's, one that Kennet regarded with skepticism. Sorkor asks if Kennet was going to lead the crew as he usually does, and Kennet says, no, it's all you, the glory is yours. Sorkor is happy to go. He's crying commands. The men are responding to his battle cries and seem also very eager. Kenneth, of course, is kind of dismissing it as bloodlust, battlelust. Right. It's really interesting because we see a very apathetic Kenneth. He is not excited to do this. He right. is not trying to take an active role in any part of this. He kind of just doesn't care. And he is waiting for the failure to sink in that or for the real realities of how the situation will play out to to change Sorkor's mind. He doesn't think Sorkor will want to keep this up. He does not understand the possibility of just wanting to free human beings because it's the right thing to do, especially when you're with a bunch of pirates who typically don't have morality as their compass. And it's really interesting to me because the rest of this chapter is Kenneth. He is so not interested in whatever is going on. He's crabby that he didn't get his live ship. He's mad because Sorkor is taking too much control and overstepping the boundaries. And he also doesn't really want to deal with the fact that people seem to actually be enjoying this task. Kenneth's remaining aboard the Marietta with a skeleton crew who all seem kind of upset that they're not able to join the slaughter, as Kenneth says, while Sorkor and his crew are boarding on the other ship. And Kenneth says he's a spectator to the slaughter of the, the slaver's crew. They had little expected to be attacked by pirates. Their cargo was not usually to a pirate's taste. Most pirates, like Kenneth, preferred valuable non-perishable goods, preferably easily transportable. The chained slaves below decks were the only cargo this ship carried. Even if the pirates had had the will to make the tedious voyage to Chelsea to sell them, the transport of such cargo demanded a watchful eye and a strong stomach. Such livestock needed to be guarded as well as fed, watered, and provided with rudimentary sanitation. The ship itself would have some value, Kenneth supposed, though the current stench it gave off was enough to turn his stomach. So again, he's just thinking of these as livestock, as goods. We've kind of remarked on that before in the previous stuff. He just doesn't have the empathy that these are people. Right. It's really interesting. He says, he makes a comment later that some of the people probably deserved what they got. There's this weird disconnection of if you're a slave, then you probably deserve to be a slave and who cares? You're not a person anymore. And I find that really interesting because of who he was, that he was kind of in this powerless role before where he was almost a slave to Rob Red. No. Oh my gosh. That's the wrong series. Igrit. Igrit. So, and here we have him seeing other people in a similar position and he just looks down at them and sees them as not human. I just find it really strange, but I suppose he's not a very empathetic person. So yeah, he probably wouldn't compare himself to those people because <laughs> they didn't work to get out of it. I guess. I don't know. Really hard to understand where he's coming from with this very strong distaste for slaves and seeing slaves as people. True. Maybe he's more of like, uh, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and made this of the world 
they would do the same thing. Kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I kind guess. of approach the world. I don't know. Just strange. He is reminiscing a little bit about a previous conversation that he had with Sorcor, because he had tried to persuade Sorcor that the crew and the vessel of the slavers might have some ransom value, even if divested of their cargo. Sorcor had been adamantly opposed. We kill the crew, free the cargo, and sell the ship, but not back to other slavers, he had lawfully, loftily stipulated. Kenneth was beginning to regret letting the man think he regarded him as an equal. He was becoming entirely too demanding and seemed unaware of how odious Kenneth found such behavior. Kenneth narrowed his eyes as he considered that the crew seemed overly pleased with Sorcor's idealistic ranting. He doubted it was that they shared his lofty goals of suppressing slavery, more like that they relished the thought of unreigned carnage. As he watched two of his worthy seamen together loft a still living man over the side and into the waiting maw of a serpent, Kenneth nodded his head slowly to himself. This bestial bloodshed was what they craved. Perhaps he had been keeping too tight a rein on the men for the sake of the ransom that live captives bought. He tucked that thought away for later consideration. He could learn from anyone, even Sorcor. All dogs needed to be let off their leashes now and then. He mustn't let the crew believe that only Sorcor could provide such treats. So it's it's really interesting reading his chapters and his viewpoints because he is a very calculating one-on-one kind of person. He he does manipulate crowds very well. He's gotten his way to mutiny against his previous captain, get this whole new ship, this crew following him, believing in him. And yet he still doesn't understand basic empathy or human nature in right. some way, which is a very odd juxtaposition to have the two competent, like competency and such ignorance of what really drives a man. And yes, some of these pirates could be just driven by bloodlust, but not an insignificant amount are going to like that they're freeing slaves because as Kenneth himself has remarked, a lot of the pirates in the pirate isles are former slaves themselves or have family members that are. Yeah. So we do have this really interesting thing with Kenneth, right? We do have that idea that he can't, grasp the reality of what people are doing. I really like how you phrased it where he is really good at manipulation, but doesn't quite understand the emotions behind it, that he doesn't feel them the same way. It kind of reminds me of how I've read before about, I believe it's sociopaths. They're the ones who don't feel emotion or is that psychopath? I don't remember. I think it's sociopaths. Whichever one. I read something somewhere once on the internet, so who knows if it's true, that they don't, like, if they don't feel it themselves, it it doesn't keep them from being able to manipulate others. Right. Because they don't have the feelings themselves, then manipulation doesn't feel bad to them. They don't have that sort of... I guess moral compass inside. I don't know what it guilt. They probably don't feel guilt. So, so there's nothing that's like, Oh, I'm really just kind of using human nature against people to get what I want. And I think that's kind of what this is where he doesn't feel bad that he uses human nature against it. He just doesn't quite understand it in a way that somebody who has those emotions would. Right. And kind of just kind of watching this all like, well, I guess they just need to kill people. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's, <laughs> I hate that I'm saying this about such a horrible human being, but it's like, it's great that he's 
saying, hey, here's something I didn't know. I'm going to learn from this. I love that. Um, <laughs> wish it wasn't about killing people and the fact, like, I hate that he... Keeping your crew under control and whatever. Yeah, that it wasn't, like, for manipulation purposes. But I do like the idea that even Kenneth, who thinks he knows everything, can recognize that there are things he don't he doesn't know and that he can use that to better himself in the future. <laughs> but, like, if you think about that without the context, that's a pretty good... It's a healthy thing. But in general, Kenneth doesn't really like the violence. No. He, he says he's getting bored by this. It has no suspense because the outcome is pretty much inevitable. And there was a sameness to men dying that bored more than disgusted him. The shrieks, the blood that gushed or leaked, the final frantic struggles, the useless pleas. He had seen it all before. It was far more enlightening to watch the two serpents. And... He gives a description of these two serpents. One seems to be a lot larger than the other one, and that the larger one's just kind of waiting, and the smaller one seems to be pretty fearless, going up right by the uh, the deck and getting frustrated that the people that he breathed his poisonous cloud on that died stayed on the deck and didn't fall off. And he gives a description of like the the weird little tentacle barb things that they have as a mane around them and we get a full description of their heads from an outside view. Yeah. And it's really interesting to have this sort of outside view of how the serpents are reacting. Kenneth stipulates that the smaller one must be younger and maybe that's true, but also both of those serpents are thousands of years old. Probably. Right. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> like one generation or something. Or <laughs> Yeah. Although who knows? Maybe I don't think there are new serpents hatching. Right. So no. there's not, so it would probably just be that that one hasn't eaten as much. Maybe. I would assume. Who I knows? Know. But then how would it survive? Who knows? Obviously, know. it is inexperienced in some way, though, because one of them is just kind of waiting for the food to fall in, and one of them tries to kill people on deck and is mad that they don't fall in the water. Right. So he's watching these serpents, and he's kind of fascinated by it. He notices that his crew seems to share that awe, and they keep tossing these slavers crew members to the serpents to watch them fight over it, putting them in the middle, putting them towards whatever. And they're getting entertainment out of it. He says it soon became a game to toss each victim or corpse, not to the serpent, but between them to watch the great beasts vie for the meat. Those men who had remained aboard the Marietta felt greatly slighted to be excluded from this pastime, for though they kept their duties on the ship, it was with many a glance in the direction of their comrades. As the serpents became sated, their aggression diminished, and they were more content to take turns with their feeding. It is really interesting, because Kenneth does mention that this is probably the closest anyone's come to serpents and been able to just look at them. He gets to actually observe what it's like, what they're doing, yeah. what their nature is. But it's also with an experiment of human lives being lost. Yeah. So it's a little dark and it's winding down. It's time to be done with this. And he is noting, like you said, the dissatisfaction at the people who had to stay behind, which, you know is easy enough to fix next time they get to go and the other people have to stay. It has to be a turn-based thing, but he also doesn't think this is going to be a reoccurring normal thing. Right. Yeah. Cause 
The slaves are now coming up onto deck. The crew is kind of completely disposed of. And Kenneth, <laughs> he, he realizes how bad that stench is once they release the hatch and let the slaves up. Again, doesn't think of them as humans, really, just as a terrible stench. But he quit the afterdeck soon and went down to his cabin to escape that scene. And some moments later, Sorkor comes and raps on his door, and Sorkor is over the moon with himself. He's very pleased. He's like a complete victory. The ship is ours. Over 350 men, women, and children released. And Kenneth asks if there are any other cargo we're speaking of. And Sorkor grins. The captain seemed to have an eye for fine clothes, sir, but he was a portly man and his taste in colors rather wild. Then perhaps you will find the dead man's garments to your taste. The chill in Kenneth's tone stood Sorkor up straight. If you have finished with your adventure, I suggest we put a small crew aboard her and sail our prize to port somewhere, seeing as how that wooden hulk is all we have to show for the night's work. How many men lost or wounded? Two dead, sir. Three cut up a bit. Sorkor sounded resentful of the question. Plainly, he had been foolish enough to expect Kenneth to share his exuberance. I wonder how many more we shall lose to disease. The stench alone is enough to give a man the flux, let alone whatever other contagion they have bred in that tub. It's scarcely the fault of the folk we have rescued if we do, sir, Sorkor pointed out stiffly. I did not say it would be. I will put it down to our own foolishness. Now... We have the ship to show for our troubles, and perhaps it will sell for a bit, but only after we have rid it of its cargo and seen to its scrubbing out. He looked at Sorkor and smiled carefully as he phrased the question he had been looking forward to. What do you propose to do with these wretches you have rescued? Where shall we put them off? So this is where it comes in that Kenneth really doesn't think that Sorkor thought this all through. And Sorkor hasn't, to be fair. Kenneth is right in his estimation there. But Kenneth is assuming that Sorkor is going to find this part way too heavy a burden to continue to do this. It's way too much of a problem. Right. He's underestimating how much Kenneth, or I'm sorry, how much Sorkor would like to fix this problem with slavery. Yeah. And how much he cares. Because this is something Sorkor does care deeply about. And it doesn't really put him off. It does kind of make him think a bit. But I also feel like Sorkor probably assumed Kenneth would help with this part. And Kenneth's kind of washing his hands of it. He's like, this is your thing. You wanted this. So you get to deal with the aftermath. You have to make the decisions. Which is really weird because that is giving him more authority. That is giving him more power and kind of more of what he wants. And this is exactly what Kenneth was just complaining about, that Sorkor already feels too big for his britches. That he At the same time, though, he's he's badgering him and like putting in these little barbs. I think it's more to make him feel overwhelmed with what decisions come with making the overall decision, right? It's the things that follow. It's not just the power of like, we're going to do this now. It's what do you do after once you've accomplished right. that? I think that's what Kenneth's trying to drive in, even though it's kind of cruel. <laughs> right. Because he, he asks, like, okay, where do we put him off? And Sorkor's like, we can't put him off on any sort of land. It'd be murder. You know, they'd have mm-hmm. nothing. And Kenneth's like, oh, murder. You know, that's something that we know about. Of course, I haven't been tossing people to serpents lately. And Sorkor's like, well, they got what they deserved. So he's just, like, getting in these little jibes of, like, oh, 
look what you've been doing. Deal with it. Right. I don't know. I do also find this really interesting. So we get a description that Sorcor is slowly losing that excitement of we did it. We did this cool thing. I'm so happy that we did this. And it's now like slowly turning into this frustrated and upset person mm-hmm. kind of is really changing the mood here. And it just makes me wonder why does Sorcor stay loyal after this point? Because I think Kenneth has shown in multiple ways he actually doesn't care about slaves and he has no interest in saving them. He's only doing it because he feels that it is a trade-off in some way. And so I, I don't know. I just don't understand Sorcor's point of view where he's like, you know what? This is frustrating, but I still really respect Kenneth and will follow him. Because he still has the deal. I suppose. Still free more slaves. And Kenneth is a master manipulator. He follows up those little jibes with... Ah, Sorcor, I do not dispute that they, you know, they deserved it. I am merely trying to remind you that we are, you and I, pirates, murderous villains who scour the inside passage for vessels to overcome, loot and plunder and ransom. We do this to make a profit for ourselves. We are not a nursery maids for sickly slaves, half of whom are probably as deserving of their fates as were the crew that you fed to the serpents. Nor are we heroic saviors of the downtrodden, pirates, Sorcor. We are pirates. It was our deal, Sorcor pointed out doggedly. For every live ship we chase, we go after one slaver. You agreed. So I did. I had hoped that after you had dealt with the reality of one triumph, you would see the futility of it. Look you, Sorcor. Say we strain our crew and our resources to take that squalid vessel to Divi Town. Do you think the inhabitants are going to welcome us and rejoice that we put ashore 350 half-starved, ragged, sickly wretches to infest their towns as beggars, whores, and thieves? Do you think that slaves are that the slaves that we have rescued are going to thank you for abandoning them to their fates as paupers? Sorcor says, like, they're thankful now, the whole lot of them. And I know in my time, if I was released anywhere, I'd just be grateful to get out of that. And Kenneth is this whole time just agreeing with him, just kind of, you know, smoothing over the hurts that he, he himself riled up saying like, I'm just pointing out the faults in you. Like look where I, we have that deal. There is futility though. We can't just save everyone and be the saviors of the world, which is true. Like they can't just save everyone and heal everyone. Right. Be what they were before. Right. And Kenneth says to Sorcor's, uh, thought of like, I'd be happy to just be a free man. And he says, very well, very well. He made a great show of capitulating with a resigned sigh. Let us ride this ass to the end if we must. Choose a port, Sorcor, and we shall take them there. I shall ask but this. On our way there, those who are able shall begin the task of cleaning out the vessel. And I should like to get underway as soon as we are decently able while the ser- serpents are still satiated. And then has a little of a side of having Sorcor remain aboard the Marietta to keep him separated from the crew as well, which Sorcor doesn't like. But I, uh, I do want to say that this has completely flipped Sorcor's opinion, not completely, but pretty much flipped Sorcor's opinion from the first couple pages ago, right? where he's like, we can't put him on any bit of land to be murder. And he, Kind of, kind of pokes and prods him, and then finally is like, "Pick any port near here. We'll drop him off." Right, and that's what we're doing. And that's that's what he gets Sorcor to agree to, instead of like, 
well, we have to bring them to Divi Town. We have to do this for them. We have to do this for them. Kind of gets his way of like, we can free them. We can do this, but we're just dropping them off. Right. No, that is a good point. And I guess it does showcase the manipulation of like, see, I'm just doing this for your benefit. I'm like, I'm not trying to be a bad guy here. I just want you to see that it's hard to be like, captain. Don't have the resources for everything, you know, yeah, which is uh, despicable because I think it's hard because. This kind of mirrors what just happened with Althea and Brashen, right? Brashen is telling Althea a hard truth and making her fully think through the consequences of her actions in a way that she hasn't had to do before. However, because we know Brashen, even though we weren't in his head for that, we know that he's not saying these things to be malicious. Like, sure, he's probably... He's trying to convince her, but he's not trying to manipulate her. No, and he's probably getting a little bit of satisfaction about the fact that she's a a little upset because he kind of does dislike her at this point. But at the same time, he's not saying the things to upset her on purpose. Right. He's saying it because they're true, and if that upsets her, that's just kind of a funny aside. Because that's how we how we know who Brashen is. And then seeing that exact same scenario where on the surface, if we didn't know Ken at all and weren't in his point of view, he is just trying to help Sorkor learn how to be a better leader. This is just him talking through the realities of yeah. something that is hard for a pirate to do alone. And that is great for growth and for becoming a better leader. I think it's a valuable lesson for Sorkor if you don't take into consideration that this is all manipulation. And I think that's really wonderfully done by Hob. Yeah, but to your point before of like wondering why Sorkor doesn't leave, kind of even himself is saying like I'm he's straining Sorkor's loyalty. And that link was mostly just Sorkor's loyalty to Kenneth. Right. He shook his head to himself. It was perhaps his own fault. He had taken a simple, uneducated sailor with a knack for numbers and navigation and elevated him to the status of mate, taught him how it felt to control men. Thinking, perforce, went with that command. But Sorkor was beginning to think too much. Kennet would soon have to decide which was more worth more to him, the mate's value as second in command, or his own total control of his ship and men. Kennet sighed heavily tools blunted so quickly in his trade. So Kenneth is aware that what he is doing is driving a wedge between them a bit, but he's seeking to control Sorkor and correct his own mistake in Kenneth's eyes of putting them on that equal footing. Right. It got what Kenneth wanted at the time, but now he has to try to get it back to where it was while still retaining the deal to go after live ships with Sorkor, you know, entertaining this for the crew and, and keeping them engaged with everything. Right. And it is a really hard line to tread. There is this, this frustration of Kenneth's where like he likes Sorkor to some extent, not the way humans like friends, but the way your you like your favorite utensil or tool right, or whatever. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> like you have your favorite pen at work. Like there's not, <laughs> it's not human to human, but there is this sort of pettiness of sure. I've now led Sorkor to a better place of where I'm more in control again, but instead of just leaving it there, I'm also going to add the hurt of he doesn't get to be on the ship with the freed slaves. And there was no reason for it. 
there, he could have let Sorcor go, but I guess again, it goes to that control of he can't let Sorcor go off because what if that then he tries a, a mutiny, right? He yeah. just can't trust anybody, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of makes it makes sense because he's a pirate and also he and Sorcor did create an uprising, but. I don't know. It's not a great way to live your life to <laughs> only see people as tools. I don't know. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week. If you have anything that you want to mention to us, please let us know. We're at isfitshappy at gmail.com where you can email us or you can message us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or it is fitshappy for the handle and the sites on all of those. Rate, review, Tell your friends about us if they've read the series. Of course, we don't want to spoil people. Tell your friends to read the series if they haven't. Yeah. Join in on the conversation. It's always fun to hear what you guys are thinking. We definitely enjoy hearing your guys' ideas. 